There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy Podcast with me, Alison Perry. Hello and a warm welcome to this episode. I'm joined today by Candice Brathwaite, mum of two and author of Sunday Times best-selling book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, which is part memoir and part manifesto and details what it's like to be a black mother in Britain today. Candice's voice has been a really important one in the past few weeks as we've reacted to the tragic death of George Floyd, asked questions about systemic racism and as we all strive to educate ourselves and do what we can to fight racism. Candice talks to me today about how, as a black woman, so many aspects of her motherhood experience have been different to the stories that we hear and see in the media, on TV and on social media. From dealing with racist microaggressions when she was buying her much-wanted bugaboo pushchair to choosing to move out of London when she discovered that she was pregnant with a boy because she was so scared that staying in London would eventually lead to him being hurt or killed. Now, these are not typically things that white mums have to deal with. And her book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, is a must-read for anyone who wants to understand the daily realities of black mothers. It was an utter privilege to be able to discuss this with Candice and, spoiler alert, hear about the whispers that it might be developed into a TV series. Listen on to find out more. Candice, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me again. Again. Well, you were a guest two years ago, but a lot has changed since then. I mean, for a start, you're only a Sunday Times bestselling author. I know. (laughs) Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. And I I don't think anyone would have predicted that two years ago at all. Um, Was I pregnant then? No, um, you'd had RJ. So he was quite young. It was... He was young. I think it was May. It was May 2018. So when when was he born? Was it April? March. So he was eight weeks old. Eight weeks, nine weeks thereabout. Yeah. 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 And I came to your house and he was being looked after in the other room and... Um, yeah, I mean, you were in the thick of it then in terms of motherhood. I mean, having an eight-week-old oh, baby, that's that's intense. Looking back on when RJ was born, it was, it was an intense, insane period. I felt like my career had just started to warm up 
and there was like this maximum fear of oh if I take my foot off the gas now um I could miss my moment type vibe so I remember like going to events when he was six weeks old and I saw you at a dinner I saw you at a book launch dinner and I yeah. think I think he was like two weeks old Candice oh my God. and I said to you I almost like wanted to like wrap you in a hug and be like are you sure you want to be here and you looked great like you were chatty and sparky and you know oh, I, on the inside though I was losing it and I just thought looking back I'm like do you know what if I ever have a third child I keep saying to my friends this will be the first child that I would have probably with no fear no anxiety like I'd actually feel like my career's in a space where I can take proper maternity leave you know was just too broke to even consider that with Esme had just got warmed up with RJ so if there was a third child I think I could have some time off I hope if that was to happen anyway so for anyone who isn't aware tell us mm. about your book I am not your baby mother I mean it's it's really good, Candice, and I'm not just oh. saying that to suck up to you. It made me sad, <laughs> it made me angry, it made me laugh. It's a really good book. Tell everyone about oh. it. Thank you. Um, it's primarily part memoir, part manifesto about what it's like to be a black British mother in Britain today. Um, and it's really personal. It's really, it can be quite heavy, quite hard hitting. It is in the UK, the first of its kind. No major publishing houses back to book um, about black motherhood or black parenthood before. So in that respect, it's it's one of one, which is so strange considering how much material is available um, in the UK by UK writers about motherhood and parenting. And so it's original in that sense. And it's just, you know, people keep saying, oh, your autobiography, which makes me feel really weird because it's not that. I'm only 32. And if it was going to be an autobiography, the book would have been three times as long. Um, It's not that. It's just me just highlighting some of the nuances and difficulties that come with raising black children in British society basically. It's interesting because the last time that we spoke on the podcast you talked about when you worked in publishing Mm. and you said that although everyone was lovely you felt excluded and that was Mm. you talking about working in the office but do you think that that lack of diversity in publishing is why it's taken so long for a book about being a black British mother to be published? Completely. I said this yesterday, I think I was on Instagram live. Um, uh, my, 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 pub, my team, my entire team at Quercus are amazing. But at some point during the editing process, a freelancer was asked to like copy edit and whatever. And she was a white um, woman, middle aged upwards. And the things she was asking me to change, the comments in the margins, enraged me because there would be a conversation I'm having with Bode and I'd reference his Nigerian heritage and she'd leave a comment saying well surely all Africans think this way (gasps) things yes (laughs) yes and I got on the phone to like my head editor and was like dude you fire her or we fight which way do you want it um and you know Quercus were like on it they were like Jesus no uh, we know that you know it's going to take a special kind of editor to understand the material but that's the that's the sad thing why does it need a special type of editor why aren't there black editors black copy editors readily available in these spaces um as someone who was one of one one of two perhaps at top end one of three at Penguin in in that division at the time, 
I understand how um, from the outside looking in, people could say, well, you know, black people don't apply for these roles and all of that stuff. Well, then publishing houses need to look at ways to make it sh make it clear that they're willing to invite diverse voices. Um, because if you've only got the kind of woman that will tell me that surely all Africans think this way, doing these jobs, even when black writers do get a deal, if they don't stand up for themselves, their voices are diluted. And the book they pitched is not the book they publish. Um, and sometimes, you know, with material by great black writers, I see that discourse in the finished product. I'm like, mm, that, you know, you've gone a bit light there. I feel like as a black woman, you could have said dot, dot, dot. But now that I've been published, I understand how sometimes you could feel like things are out of your hands, so to speak. And a lot of writers in general feel like I'm so grateful to have this book deal. And yes. if it's your first book, you don't know how the publishing world works. And you're kind of just trusting these people and you don't really know what you're doing. So to have that confidence to stand up and say, actually, no, I want this to stay the way it is, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, huge deal. And I don't know. Well, no, by that time, I built up such trust in Quirkus. I knew that saying how I felt was important. Um, and not only had they like decided to take this book on, but the title itself is very provocative. So... I didn't then want to feel like I was half-arsing it, so to speak, with the material. Um, luckily, um, we I got a new editor and uh, and the book is as it is now. But I, I feel like I was only able to stand up for myself like that because I'd worked in publishing and I understood what was lacking. I could only imagine a young black British woman who has no idea how this works, feeling like she could possibly lose this thing if she says... Um, I need you to step back because you don't quite understand what I'm trying to say. Now, I found myself using the phrase eye-opening mm. a lot in the last few weeks when talking about watching news footage or hearing experiences from black people, which I think only goes to, to highlight how closed and blinkered my eyes were before. But mm. reading about what motherhood has been like for you really did feel eye-opening to me. Things like the experience that you had buying your much-wanted bugaboo and how badly you were treated... And it should have been this really special moment, but instead you had to deal with racist microaggression, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. The woman clearly, like, my name's Candice Brathwaite, so more often than not, people think a little Scottish girl's going to arrive or something. <laughs> and then when I turn up on her doorstep with also my very black-looking sister, she initially thought we were charity workers. Then when she works out, we're there to get the pushchair. It was just a very defensive line of communication. She wouldn't take the security chain off the door. It was really, really weird and... I felt attacked and triggered the whole time and my sister was rightfully angry but I also knew that uh, these preconceived notions and stereotypes come from somewhere and on the doorstep in that moment when all I want is this pushchair which is supposedly going to make my motherhood experience the best thing ever, I didn't want a truthful interaction which would have my anger rightfully at the forefront disrupt me getting this pushchair so I just swallowed whatever she was giving and I got on with it but and I never expected to write this book but I I am grateful that I'm able to remember those those things that to so many would be little but um in the black British motherhood experience is really quite common it's it's quite 
common for us to be written out of that narrative even when you look at advertising for push chairs or or formula milk anything i find it really hard to remember when i saw black mothers the face of this it's funny because we actually I, i listened back to our last podcast chat um, yesterday and we spoke about this in quite a lot of detail I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about exactly what we chatted about back then but you talk a lot about this and how you know there, there aren't black mothers out there in advertising campaigns in the media mm. and that's what led you to start up make motherhood diverse wasn't it mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I think just as we recorded that episode the two co-founders of make motherhood diverse had left me high and dry it was it was shortly after that yeah yeah and i was it's so funny to look back and think that i was nervous about continuing with mmd that's really funny to reflect on but i'm so glad i stuck to my guns because now make motherhood diverse has become an agency of sorts so many brands come to me and are like we want the most diverse pool of versions of motherhood and we think you are the quickest way to do that um and so i find myself even when i was on holiday in barbados in march i was on the beach trying to get wi-fi so i could pay women who and people who had been employed via make motherhood diverse and having that conversation with you two years ago that would have blown my mind because i simply saw that space as like a humans of new york type vibe where people it was their community and they could come and share their stories now it has been a way where women who don't have a large following, who are in no way obsessed with the term influencer or internet celebrity, can get paid work just for being themselves. And I just, that blows my mind. I never expected that bit, but I'm really proud of it. That's amazing. And also it's kind of how it should be because, you know, someone someone hasn't got a more valid story to tell just because she has 100,000 followers on Instagram. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Someone with with 40 followers on Instagram could have a really important message and a really important yeah. experience. If anything, I think the more the more sometimes a following goes up, the less inclined you are to share wholeheartedly mm. or with or with purpose. Or perhaps for many, it really is just an advertising reel, you know. And so um, Make Motherhood Diverse does, it does level the playing field, I feel. Like everyone's voice is valid in that space. I couldn't care if you have a million followers or 10. If you come to utilise that space, everyone should be treated as equal. Definitely. So have you noticed the difference in the last two years in terms of the media landscape, just visibility in general, is mm. have things moved on in the last couple of years or are, are we still pretty much where we were? I think we've moved on a lot on socials. So, social, you know, I think brands, and it shouldn't have taken this, brands are sick and tired of being called out. They're tired of being cancelled. Someone's going to say something if something doesn't feel right. And so I think in social campaigns, we've 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 moved the needle a little bit. You know where we still struggle in like TV? So all these recent shows about motherhood, you know, ones on Netflix, parent, there's so many of them. Mm. 
no 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 faces of color not black not asian nothing so in a tv perspective we're still we're still stuck in 2018 or before that unfortunately in terms of parenting magazines we're still struggling a little i've seen a few more front covers featuring black babies or black parents but it's not as common as it should be i think the only space leading the change and charge is on social media which is so often the way anyway isn't it yes you know Yes. Um, now, can we talk a bit about your birth experience with Esme? Yeah, sure. You describe it as a hideous nightmare. And mm. in a similar way to when you bought your bugaboo, it feels like your experience of this is so different to mine, for example. Um, beforehand, your friends warned you to stay on the best side of the maternity staff, um, mm-hmm. which I just feel like no woman in labour should even be thinking about being extra nice <laughs> to the midwives just to ensure they get a decent <laughs> level of care. But it's mind boggling. Yeah, it is. But that is the lived experience of black people here and not just in in maternity. My, my granddad puts on a three piece suit to go to a hospital checkup um just because you know he's like oh i need to present myself well then they will listen to me and care for me better so it's not just a motherhood thing it's just how black people have been forced to think in this space um for anyone you know i don't want to do any spoilers but after having esme three days later a septic sac developed under my c-section wound um, I had three different midwives, all of whom told me to stay off like mum's net. They were like, you're overdoing it, you're overthinking it. Luckily, one night, the weight of Esme's body burst the sack, rushed back to hospital, slipping into septic shock, emergency surgery, then five weeks in intensive care. So that's five weeks not with my kid, you know? Just because and you weren't listened to by three different health professionals. Just because. Because if that if that septic sack had been picked up on day one, um, more than likely they could have drained it, sent me home with oral antibiotics and on we go but by the time Esme had made it burst it already started to infiltrate my bloodstream it was horrific and in a lot of ways we Esme and I still pay for that lack of connection today she is a very clingy needy child she needs a complete itinerary if I'm home half an hour late I have to FaceTime to say why and when I tabled this with my therapist just because I'm exhausted she was like yeah um when babies are born they have these tiny synapses in their brain that are designed to look for their mum and if they cannot find their mum's scent those synapses break and they never gel back together what happens for that child's personality is that they are always in fear that their mother's gonna leave them and so beyond almost dying that's like my secondary annoyance forever Esme's gonna fear that I'm not gonna be around and then guess what if if this plays out how it should one day I won't be around I should technically die before her then what what becomes of a child who was always in fear of that loss anyway so yeah it's quite heavy <laughs> a statistic that is talked about quite a lot at the moment is that black women are five times more likely to die than mm. white women during childbirth but a fact that i didn't know until reading your book is that black babies have a 121 percent increased chance of being stillborn yeah. and a 50 percent increased risk of neonatal death compared to white babies mm-hmm. i i had no idea um what, in your opinion, needs to change to improve these awful statistics? 
And it's so funny. Before I go on to that, I will say that Parliament are really cheeky. The, the, that data was in their response yeah, to that petition. I saw that in your book. I was, yeah. I was like, um, what needs to change? There needs to be, you know, it, there's no um, one way to do this and there's no easy way to do it. And I know it sounds really just like, what is she asking? But there has to be a whole dismantling of the NHS from top to bottom. We need to understand why black doctors or nurses are only able to get to a certain level and then above that level it's just a sea of white faces i recently spoke at the royal college of gynecology um something like that i spoke at their um they had a conference a couple months ago earlier this year before lockdown and everyone on like the board is white white men yeah. talking about you know you giving rules about gynecology and i was the only one on the stage who is not tied to the nhs in any form so i really gave it to them plain and you know i'm i won't say any names but one of the examples is how uh, a, a, a a popular midwife was able to retain her job even though she'd be rumbled for racist trolling yeah. i used that as an example that day and the place fell silent i was like and then you wonder why we have a problem because someone in an office somewhere are you really trying to tell me that she doesn't bring that bias to work mm. are you really trying to tell me that um healthcare providers who have who are shown publicly to have unconscious or conscious bias towards black people or people of colour, they do not bring that attitude into their workspace. That is an absolute farce. And the fact that these people aren't immediately apprehended is part of the problem. It's part of the, like, turn the other eye culture. And so, for me, the NHS would have to really, like, whoo, be knocked down and have to start again. But that, that that's just such a huge ask. I doubt I'll see it in my lifetime. I think one of the really big problems about the situation that you've just um, explained is that anybody who, from now on, is under the care, any black woman who's under the care of a midwife who is known mm. to have racist views, how, is, mm. how are they going to feel? How is that going to, you know, affect their mental health during their pregnancy? Exactly, exactly. And how, and um, what the, it just doesn't, it's not a good look for the hospital. It's not a good look for the maternity team. Because if I knew that, I wouldn't want someone like that caring for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm within my rights to feel that way, you know. So, But again, so the only thing that was in my hands is this book. Everything else kind of feels outside of my playground. So I, I just try to make myself as clear as possible. And I think you really have. I think you really have. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Um, and you mentioned in the book that you had to seek out information about black women's experiences of giving birth from America. Mm. Is there still a lack of, you know, because that, that was about seven, eight years ago, seven years ago, wasn't it? Is yes. there still a lack of information available here in the UK? Because I, I do see people like Mars Lord, for example, doing really great work supporting black pregnant mothers. Yeah. But has has the landscape changed at all? The la- Yeah, it's changed slightly. You've got the great work of Mars Lord. You've got various independent black doulas really reaching out to these mothers but what we okay so what I would love to see respected is the medical and the holistic what seems to be the case is the NHS frown deeply on things like having a black doula or leaning into a more holistic approach of birth even if you end up with the least holistic approach which is maybe say an emergency c-section but understanding how important that doula or this chosen midwife is in the black woman's experience there's still a disconnect there so we have the Marses of the world and these great women doing these actionable things. But I, I feel like they are not respected by certain gatekeepers who also know that black women and women of colour do struggle when it comes time to, to you know, give themselves fully to, to the to the NHS and the maternity space. And so I would love to see um, the NHS respect doulas more because many black women in the UK are deciding to use them because they feel like in that moment you need someone that's going to advocate for you and like you said I think white women have had the freedom to lose their shit whilst giving birth but still be listened to black women can't even get angry in the process of giving birth I mean that's just crazy isn't it like i i didn't mention it in the book but it did come up and bose was like i'm so surprised you never mentioned that and i either forgot or i thought it wasn't important but um i i of course lost my shit after 19 hours of induced labor to only dilate to one centimeter and then have a c-section unbeknownst to me during that period the hospital put me under mental health watch and then when it came time for me thinking next day we're going home, they pulled Bode aside and were like, basically, we think Candice is a little out of her mind. And if we're to release Esme into both of your care, you need to come with us now to Croydon County Court to sign some paperwork. You are kidding. I am not. And what was the paperwork? What, what, what was it, was, it was it was um, outlining that, you know, Esme would be in his care whilst they continued to look at my mental health. All because I'd been strapped to a bed because once you've been induced, you, you can't get up. You can't. I'd been strapped to a bed for 19 hours with no food or water under a chemically induced labour. And I was rightfully shouting at everyone. I mean, that's kind of just a normal description of being in labour, isn't it? Exactly. You are allowed to scream and shout and get angry. This is it. Exactly. But again, um, 
because again it's mentioned in the book as well black people you know we have higher rates of being sectioned under the mental health act there is just you know you can't slip up anywhere because some aspect of this country are looking to slight you just because you're black and you're having maybe you're a bit depressed or you're having a bit of a moment so yeah that gosh there's so much more to the story and you talk about um another time when you felt that you couldn't be as angry as you felt was when Esme had suffered racism at school and Mm. you marched up to the school and you had to have a conversation with your friend Remy about Mm. how am I going to handle this and she was almost like well what was the brilliant piece of of advice that she gave you (laughs) she said um I don't even I don't want to swear she said you can um, swear you can swear oh she said hold space for your anger like little Kim but fuck them up like Michelle Obama and I I literally want that on a t-shirt because it is it, that's how it was. I was so steaming and I had every right to walk into that space and flip a table. You did. A, a white mother at that school possibly, you know, would have just gone in and flipped a table and not thought yeah. anything about it. Whereas you exactly. are thinking, how is this going to look? How is this going to be turned around and used against yeah. me? Yeah. And, you know, as I'm walking to the school, Remy's saying, remember, you know, this part will go missing on the CCTV. It will, The story will be retold as you going in there and, like, threatening to kill a teacher or something. Mm. And I was like, she's so right, she's so right, she's so right. Um, But wh- why should I... And, you know, that seems to be the theme or the thread that carries the entire book. My silence, my me trying to be to appease other people's bad behavior, trying to make excuses, trying not to seem too big. I feel that from chapter one to chapter nine, to be honest. Um, but why should it have to be that way? Yeah, it was deplorable. Yeah, um, and you pulled Esme out of school when that happened. Did yeah. that spark conversations with her about how to handle this these sort of situations? I mean, it shouldn't even be needed. But are mm. you are you kind of actively equipping both of your kids with tools that they need to navigate the world yeah completely and you know so when the the murder of George Floyd populated our feeds um you know I saw a lot of white people like oh I'm really I don't know how to have this conversation about race with my child it's really uncomfortable and when I saw these posts I just laughed black people we don't get a choice we do not get a choice you are speaking my hope was for Esme that I wouldn't have to table race until she was at least eight nine because that seems to be the given average but she was four she how do you describe to a four-year-old what racism is or why she's been left to sit alone for the entire afternoon at school how do you even break that down so now I I have to go all in making sure that the material we give to her what she watches what she reads is all about uplifting her because the fact remains the minute she leaves this house there are so many hurdles in her way she's black and she's a female and RJ's only two but I'm already, oh, he's he's so boisterous and he's so stubborn. <laughs> but I'm already like, I'm scared for him to start reception. Yeah. And he's two. I'm like, oh, you know, how do we teach him how to like stand down a little bit? Because I don't want him at four or five years old to be described as like a troublemaker. What the heck? You know, he's still in nappies. Why am I already concerned with his personality? 
And you talk in the book about, you know, the fears that filled your head as soon as you discovered you were pregnant with the boy. Mm. Um, you know, gang violence, knife crime. You talk about the, the time that you watched a black teenager being pulled aside by police at the Notting Hill Carnival mm-hmm. and being told that he was a potential threat. Mm-hmm. When actually there was no threat there at all. Um, and you moved out of London, didn't you, when yeah. when you were pregnant with RJ for that reason? Yeah, yeah, we moved to Milton Keynes, so not too far, just far enough to feel like you're out of the lion's den, but not so far that um, we are the only blacks in the village. That, well, that, that must have been quite a hard call to make, because obviously you know, you're doing it for the right reasons, but then you know, there are fewer black people where where you live, I'm guessing, compared to South London. Yeah. So that must present various problems as well. I mean, as, as you've seen with, with Esme's school. Exactly. And this is the thing. So we always knew at some point in making this choice, we will be in a sticky situation. It's like, do we choose perhaps trying to save our son's life, you know, worst case scenario, or do we choose racism in the interim? What a place to be. Yeah. What a place to be. Um, clearly, we've chosen some specks of racism in the interim. Um, it's it's still not a choice I take lightly. I was born and raised in Brixton and London will forever have my heart. But I just feel like um, the potential dangers for my son are too much. Too much. And I had to be really conscious about the decision we were making. Um, because look, Jaden Moody was 13, 14 years old. So that could be RJ in the next 10, 12 years. Yeah. And I, I study knife crime like a scientist. I'm obsessed with data and charts and graphs. And there is not a hashtag that I don't know related to gang culture. And I put them in on these social media platforms. And the things I see just make me physically ill and I'm the trend is is just rising like knife crime didn't even drop during this pandemic during lockdown and that was the one thing I thought would happen I was like I'm gonna keep an eye on this data because surely lockdown you know where are these where are these young people going you know it's gonna no it's, it's still rising that there is still at least you know one violent knife situation per day and every other day someone dies and it's so frequent now you you don't even get a passport size photograph in the metro or es or whatever it's just blah 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 another stabbing in dagenham brixton wherever um and i i I just didn't want him to be a statistic and i find it really interesting that you you've said that you wrote the book with a 16 year old black girl as your reader and I was surprised mm. by that because I thought that you were writing it to, I guess, educate a largely white audience and to share what the reality of being a black mum in Britain is. So I thought it was interesting that your intentions were entirely different. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, uh, I think I said, but I had five or six proposals go out before this one. And one of the comments that kept coming back was that I was trying to write for too many people. Because if we're looking at social media data, I have to admit I'm writing, I'm sharing under a largely white gaze. And so perhaps the proposals before were trying too much to take the white reader into consideration. So the switch up with this proposal was I wasn't writing for white people at all, at all. And I thought, actually, just to be a bit cheeky, 
every chapter will begin with data just in case a white person is reading it because the first accusation will be oh you know but that's just how you feel where's the data for this yeah that's just your opinion candice yes exactly so i thought ah if that kind of white person happens to stumble across this let's hit them with the data first and then i get to directly talk to the young black women i have had emails from 50 year old white men who are like oh my gosh your book is so amazing and i'm just like (laughs) (laughs) who knew i'm like you guys are the very opposite of who i was writing for um and i think though in in shutting out the idea of a white gaze or anyone else i think that's why maybe the subject matter hits home because i'm just i feel like i'm talking to a mate I don't feel like in that book, like I'm watching my P's and Q's or I'm worried about who I may be upsetting. I'm just talking to a young black friend. I think that's what makes it so powerful, though, because, you know, as you're reading it, it really does feel like it feels like I am there with you. And, you know, it's almost like I'm feeling what you're feeling. And yeah, this is it. Yeah. At one point during the writing process. I spoke to my dear friend who's a tarot reader, Leona, and I was like, Leona, look, I'm struggling here because I know I'm I'm a far better writer than this and it's not poetic enough. I'm just, this is... And she was like, yeah, you need to leave that James Baldwin shit at the door. It doesn't live here. She was like, maybe five or six books down the line, but now is not the time. She was like, just tell... Give people the message in the shortest word count. I was like, oh, okay. And here we are. And I think, so like one of my favourite books of recent times is Natives by Akala, right? Mm. But that book is so well written that every 10 pages I have to take a break. I'm like, oh my (laughs) God, I need a coffee. I'm going to Google. I'm overwhelmed because he's just hitting us with so much education and data and knowledge that I'm I as a black I as a black woman and I'm kind of intimidated by Akala's work and I think the beauty with I'm not your baby mother is people are reading it in one sitting in a few hours listening to the audiobook in a five hour sitting in one go but still leaving the book feeling like oh my god this is my part in all of this and how can I go out into the world and change that like ah my eyes are open and so I think the simple direct language actually paid off in the end yeah it's accessible at the end of the day yes um so finally candice what is next for you have you got more books in you 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 mentioned you mentioned you know five books down the line what's next oh mate what's next do you know what's next i think um there'll be there'll be there'll be a couple more books for sure um everyone wants another book like this and I can't the emotional labor that came with this I can't rush into that so there might be a little sidestep to maybe children's books or a kid's book for a bit then come back and fit and like deliver a proper memoir of sorts um there is definitely a lot of conversation around I am not your baby mother. The original TV series. Oh. There is, I I know. How can you? That would just be the best. <laughs> there is. What's so funny is before the manuscript was even off my computer, twice, three times a week, my publishers or or agent would get hit up with, "Hi, can we talk about the rights to I am not your baby mother?" And I'm like, "That's so funny. You guys haven't even read it because it's in my head. Why are you so obsessed? <laughs> read it first. It might be." but 
from the title alone and the idea of what the book was going to be, it's really wet the appetite of like TV stage play type people. Yeah. So there's a lot of that conversation happening. Get Netflix on the phone. May, May, <laughs> um, May. And so that's the vibe. The vibe is to like, um, is to like, I know it's so common to reference her because everyone does, but it's always been the Oprah-type landscape. And, you know, that's that's, that's where... uh, There's been a lot of dips. This has not been the easiest of journeys, but I'm still very eye on the prize in in that way. It's like TV, books, directing, businesses. It's getting more women of colour, more black women jobs. Oh, my gosh. Like, it's really lifting them up and giving them the attention and love they deserve. And so I know I'm going to send myself half mad in the process, but I think, especially given the complete unexpected success of this book, it's so hard as a debut author to be a Sunday Times bestseller. Mm. It's really, really hard. That's a really big deal. Huge, huge. And I'm just like, I'm I'm not overlooking the the good the good side of power that can come with that like okay if there was a tv show can i hire my black mates can we look for unfound black writers you know that's where i'm going this is only the beginning for you candice because people see that you know writing a book and getting a book published as being like tick great i've made it but for you it's like no 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 this is just the first stepping stone <laughs> <Yeah>. to world <laughs> domination completely i'm like and i and and this is the thing if, if this is your only dream go for it because it's massive it's huge and sometimes i wish it was because I don't drink up the goodness for as long as I could sometimes. I'm like, right, next thing, next strategy. Mm. Um, but it was always it was always just going to be another lily pad for this frog to get to where she's going. Yeah. Um, and it's not even the book I intended to write, but here we are. So, yeah, it's a bit much. It's, it's fantastic. a bit weird. It's fantastic. So where can people find you? If, they, if they're not following you already, um, where can they find you online? Um, you can find me, um, Candice Brathwaite on Instagram. I've since given up on Twitter. I find Twitter really hard. Oh no, get involved. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I love Twitter. It's good for a bit of a conversation. Oh, I just, I, I get so overwhelmed and I feel like, you know, you're tweeting and you, you can't say what you want to say. And then, oh, uh, I'm just, oh, uh, I, I, <laughs> there is an ease. And also I think when it comes to specifically women of any race protecting themselves on social media, I think Instagram is the best place for that it does feel a little bit safer doesn't it yeah the 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 security the boundaries you can have in place feel a a little more safer for me so i am just candy's breath weight on the internet it's just my name on the internet (laughs) um candice thank you so much for chatting to me today it has been so good to talk to you thank you so much alison this has been amazing thank you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.